0: Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel ben Lyman HaNavi. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open in prayer. Avinu'ma king, our father, our king. Lord, thank you once again for bringing us together to study your words. Um, We are confident uh, by faith that uh, your words are spirit and they are life. They are uh, a blueprint for our living. They are uh, the very um, thoughts that you have given to us and that you have uh, preserved for us down through the centuries. We know, Lord, that they are not merely letters on a page. We know that they are quick, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we welcome them into our hearts and into our minds. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us this opportunity to share with one another and to continue to lift one another up in prayer. Uh, I pray that you'll be with those who uh, wanted to make it tonight but weren't able to make it because of uh, other schedule conflicts or because of health reasons or things like that, uh, continue to raise us up during these um, very fast-moving, from our perspective, last days, um, events just happening that are so charged with importance uh, for world events, for political events, for social events, um, and yet nothing escapes your purview. Lord, you you are not uh, surprised, you are not um uh, uh, you are not unprepared for what is happening because indeed, Lord, you are the, you are orchestrating it all. You're the author of history and everything is going according to your plan. And so um, if we would just put our faith and trust in you, like Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not to thine own understanding, and all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct thy paths. And so we will trust in you, Lord, for it is only there that we know that our paths will be made sure. So give us a heart to do your will and to uh, to keep the faith and to keep anchored and, and, and centered on the person of Yeshua, the, the man, Jesus, the Messiah. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. All right, shalom, everyone. Welcome back to another evening uh, in our study in the book of Galatians. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi, and I'm a Torah teacher out at Congregation Kehi Latunava, which is located in Thornton, Colorado. And um, we meet here every Saturday night. It's probably uh, on most of your calendars. Saturday evening from 7 p.m. to around 7.45 Central Standard Time. So adjust your time zone and you can meet us. We meet live on the Internet via Skype. All you need is an Internet connection and Skype, which means it'll work on your smartphone, it'll work on your tablet, it'll work on your PC, your laptop, etc. Uh, you don't even really have to have a Skype account. But you do need to um you'll have to at least join as a guest if you if you don't have a Skype account. Either way. Uh you can best you can find all the information that you're uh that you need at my website, tatesaitora.com, t-e-t-z-e-t-o-r-a-h.com. Head on over there and look on the look on the top, click on the link that says Galatians commentary. All the information is right there on the page, including the written notes, which are, as I mentioned, just a little short of two hundred pages. And that's what we're going through week by week, just kind of verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph as the Lord leads. We've been going now for almost two years. I I sometimes lose sight of the fact that we started back in 2015, around October or so, fall of 2015, and we're approaching, I mean, summer of 2017. So by this fall, it will be two years that we've been going through the book of Galatians. And we're going to start week 65 tonight. And the way our schedule goes, just a reminder... We go on a 10-week on, two-week off schedule. That's the way the semesters go. We teach for 10 weeks, we meet for 10 weeks, and then we take a break for two weeks, and then we pick up again uh, for the next 10 weeks. So we're right in the middle of our 10-week semester. We're right at week 50, week 65, so we'll just keep going along. Uh, and then one last thing. Um, those of you who meet with me live each week via Skype are uh, privileged to be able to At least I understand it. I I believe it's my privilege to be able to meet with you after the class and stay in the uh, Skype session for another, I don't know, 45 minutes, half an hour, whatever time allows uh, for what I call after chat session. There we don't have to uh, follow the notes. We just kind of um, share with one another, uh, banter back and forth questions and answers, um, just kind of chat with one another about whatever's going on. Whatever's, uh, uh, whatever um, concerns you might have, things like that. So if you attend the live session, then you're welcome to stay for the After Chat session. Uh, again, all of these commentaries are free. I record them. If you can't make the live session, I record them, and then a few days later, after the live recording, I upload them to my website, and that makes them available on the iTunes store as well. Just uh, Google search. Uh, Galatians commentary under the podcast section, uh, and you can find my podcast there. Okay, without further ado, let's go ahead and uh, start the uh, liturgy. Tonight's liturgy is going to be a little longer. The commentary itself isn't going to be as long, the section that we're going to be looking at, so the liturgy is a little longer, and then if we've got time after the the commentary... Um, then I want to talk to you all about uh, Romans chapter 4 and or Ephesians chapter 2, which, in my opinion, are great commentary sections versus scriptures to the the the, the uh, chapter of Galatians that we've been studying, which is Galatians chapter 3. All right. For those of you who are in the live class with me, if you look at your screen, you should be able to see that I've got pulled up Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 28 out of the ESV. We've used this uh, section in the past, and the reason I'm introducing it again is just be as a reminder of the theology behind the, uh, the, the promises that we're going to be reading about here and the way that they challenge us to understand what's taking place in the book of Galatians. And um, let me just read this first. We'll read the English and then the Hebrew, and then we'll jump over to the book of Galatians chapter 3 and read uh, a longer section there as well, okay? All right, Ezekiel thirty six twenty two through 28 reads out of the ESV, quote, verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Verse 23, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declare the Lord, God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Verse 24. And I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. This is verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And that's a very important verse, in my opinion. Verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And the last verse, verse 28, You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, that of course would be include Abraham, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Okay, let's go back up and read the Hebrew of the same section. And, uh, I'll, I'll make one brief comment on why I read this passage. Uh, starting in verse 22, the Hebrew reads, and I, if you're looking at the screen, I've got the Hebrew script right down the middle for those of you who can read Hebrew. And then on the right side, I've got a transliteration that I, that I created from the Hebrew. For those of you who can't read Hebrew script, then perhaps you can follow along reading the, uh, the transliteration, which is using English letters. Uh, the Hebrew reads: Lachin emor Levate Yisrael ko amar Adonai Adonai lo lemaanchem ani Ose Beit Yisrael ki im lachem kadoshi asher chalaltem bagoyim asher batem sham. Verse twenty-three: Vakidashti et shmi Hagadol ham chalal bagoyim asher chalaltem V'yadu hagoim, ki ani adonai, nu adonai adonai, bahikadshi vachem leenehem. Verse twenty four. V'lakah etchem min hagoim, v'ki badst ti m'kol ha el admat Verse twenty five. V'zraach ti alechem, maim te Ut koltum col tum otechem, um col Verse twenty six. Venatati lachem, lave chadash vruach chadasha, Etain bekir bechem, vahasiroti et lave ha Mibsarachem, venatati lachem, lave basar, Verse twenty seven. Vet ruchi. Etain, Bakirbachem, Vasiti, eight, a sherer, Bahuchai, Te Lehu, Umishpatai, Tishmuru, Vasitem. And the final verse, verse twenty eight Vishav Baaretz baarets, a sherer, Natati, lavotechem, Vahitem, Lee laam, Vaanohi, Ehe lachem, Leelohim. All right. Um, the part that I really just want to kind of zero in that that I think is important for our study tonight, as relates to Galatians, is this idea that if you read through, if you caught it while reading the verses there, God is basically going to do a work for corporate Israel, national Israel, uh, starting in, in, in you know starting predominantly in verse twenty four, where where it really starts getting meaty. God brings them out of exile and brings them back into the land that he promised to give their forefathers, and God starts to work on their corporate heart. God cleanses them from their uncleanness, verse 25. God takes out the old heart and puts in a new heart, verse 26, and he gives them this heart of flesh in place of the heart of stone. And then the key verse, verse 27, where God says he puts his spirit within corporate Israel. And then there's this a kind of cause and effect going on, because God puts his spirit within corporate Israel, that causes them to walk in his statutes, and they are careful to obey his rules. And then, as a result, they also dwell in the land that he gave to the forefathers. And then um, God is recognized as their God, and they are recognized as God's people. And uh, all of this is... Uh, to vindicate God's holiness, we read in verse 23, to vindicate God's holiness in His great name. And even the nations will know that the Lord is God when God is vindicated, when His holiness is vindicated through His people Israel. So we see that God's master plan, God's grand plan, involves not only corporate Israel, but the but all the nations of the world as well. God isn't just focusing on Israel, He's also bringing in... He's, he's bringing the nations into this drama as well. They can't escape the fact that what God is doing to Israel and through Israel is going to have an effect on the world. And so it's in that context that we turn to Galatians chapter 3. And in Galatians 3, we're going to read this section now. We're turning now from these uh, quotes from the book, from the Torah, we had those quotes from uh, from Deuteronomy. We had the quote from Habakkuk. We had the quote from Leviticus. Uh, Paul's going to now uh, kind of remind us of the the one of the central themes of the book of Galatians, and that is the um, the inclusion of the Gentiles with faithful Abraham's promises. That is. The Gentiles are brought into the covenants made with Abraham, and they're brought in by faith in the in the quintessential Son of Abraham, which is Messiah Himself. And so we see then that there, again, just like in the Book of Ezekiel, there's this plan that God has enacted through the offspring of Abraham, which became known as the people of Israel. God is doing these 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 things to Israel that have an effect on the people that are around Israel namely the Gentiles, the nations, the nations that are surrounding Israel. And so God works through Israel to affect the nations. It's interestingly enough, the divine irony is that God also uses the nations to get Israel's attention (laughs) as well. So God doesn't leave anyone out in the sense of uh, the grand plan for humanity. All right, let's look at this passage from the book of Galatians. It's a a bit longer read as well. And this is Um, going to allow us to see a larger part of the context of the book of Galatians. So, this time we're going to read Galatians 3, and we're going to start in verse 15 and read all the way down to verse 22. So, 15 through 22, Galatians 3. And this, of course, is ESV once again. Uh, Galatians 3.15 starts out, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Verse 16 now the promises were made to abraham and to his offspring it does not say and to offsprings referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring who is christ verse 17 this is what i mean the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by god so as to make the promises i'm sorry so as to make the promise void verse 18 For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Verse 20. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Verse 22, The Scriptures, I'm sorry, but the Scriptures imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, let's go look at the Greek of that. Again, this is going to be a little longer read. For those of you on the screen, I've Return to the uh, uh, the BibleHub.com's version of the interlinear, which has a lot of things going on the screen, but at the very least, it's got the Greek script right down the middle in black. And then uh, above that, it's got a kind of a um, transliteration using English letters. Above that, it's got some Strong's numbers, uh, Greek Strong's uh, references. And then below the Greek script which this is the uh, SBLGNT 1904, um, the SBLGNT version of the Greek. Um, below that, we've got a kind of a wooden translation in English in red, and below that we've got the morphology, all of the um, parts of speech and uh, the things like that, the, um, uh, the voices and the moods that Greek finds itself in, things like that. Okay, let's read this Greek script for us. We'll just kind of go slowly through for, for these next few verses. Starting in verse 15 reads, Adelphoi, kata, anthropon, lego, hamos, Anthropu, keku Gorumin, diasekin, udes acete, e That's verse 15. Verse 16, to de Abraham, to de Abraham, eraseason, hai epangeliai, epangeliai, kai to spermati, autu u lege spermasin hos epi polun. al host f henas kaitoispermati su hos estin christas. verse seventeen. tuta de lego diathaykain proke ku romanain tu theuho meta tetracacia kae et Namus uk acroi eis to catergeisai Epangelion. Verse eighteen Egar ek namu he cleronomia uketi ek Epangelias to de Abraham di Epangelias kikaristai hotheas. Verse nineteen Ti un ho namos. I'm sorry, Ti un. Ho namas, why then the law? And Paul answers, Mm -hmm. Ton parabasion, Karen, Pro setate, Achris hu elthe, To sperma ho epangelte." I'm sorry, epangeltai, De di angelun, In kerai mesitu. Verse 20, Ho de mesites henas, U estin ho de and verse twenty one, ho un namas kataton epangelion to the and that's a question. Is therefore the law contrary to the promises of God? And Paul answers, Megnoito, may it never be, or never may it be, literally. And then he continues, Agar edathe namas ho dunamos zo antos eknamu an en he dekausune. And the final verse in that, uh, in the section. Alasune sune he grafe tapanta hupo hamartian, hina he apangelia ek pistios jesu christu dothé tois pistiosun. I'm sorry, pistiosin. And we'll stop there. Okay. So, we've got a little longer section that we're taking a bite out tonight. At least in the Greek, uh, the, the 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 passage is a little longer. However, when we go over to my commentary, um, we're going to see that the section is not that long. It's only about... oh, Really, it's only about a page long. So, um, let's go ahead and read the section, and I think what I'll do is I'll probably be able to stick really close to just reading the commentary, um, and then I'll go back and highlight anything that I thought was worth uh, catching. But... Let's go back and get a running start. Remember from last week, we, we finished talking about this idea of, um, uh, Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law. And so to create a segue, let me just read the last basically paragraph with the verse quote in the middle. Starting at the top, I'm starting at, starting at the bottom of page 127 in my written notes, uh, referring, uh, commenting on this idea of Yeshua br- uh, redeeming us from the curse of the law. Um, I I wrote this, Yeshua brought both Jew and Gentile out from under the curse of misusing the law for nationalistic purposes by suffering outside the gate, which I say is basically that he suffered as a Gentile sinner. That is, he suffered as a cursed man who hung on a tree for his crimes. And the reason I say that is because from a Jewish, um, a Jewish, Jewish sectarian perspective, anyone who's under the curse is someone who's, I'm sorry, anyone who's outside of the protection of the law or under the curse is someone who is basically a non-covenant member. Well, a non-covenant member is basically a Gentile. So I'm speaking as a as a, as a kind of a covenant Jew for this perspective. So I think Yeshua was basically uh, uh, suffered as a Gentile in that sense, in a kind of a midrashic sense, um, thus destroying that bad ideology that had the effect of creating hostility between Jews and Gentiles, uh, and of limiting the divinely intended multinational scope of god his torah his covenants and his blessings and so in in yeshua by yeshua suffering and dying as a gentile as it were while at the same time he he was also the quintessential jew and if you think that's a far-fetched midrash just consider the fact that paul uses abraham in romans chapter 4 as simultaneously the father of the jews the circumcised and the father of the Gentiles, because Abraham was counted as righteous in genesis fifteen six when he was still as of yet uncircumcised, and so Abraham is the father of both Jews and Gentiles at the same time, right, and no one has a problem understanding that Midrash because it comes directly from Romans chapter four. Well, in like manner, Yeshua is the quintessential son of Abraham, therefore he's going to also identify as the quintessential Obedient Jew and the quintessential, or let me say it this way He's going to identify as the quintessential righteous Jew as well as the quintessential righteous Gentile. And in so doing, he has to, before he can be the quintessential righteous Jew and Gentile at the same time, God had to make him suffer as the quintessential unrighteous Gentile and the quintessential unrighteous Jew. Understand what I'm saying? So, in this way, Yeshua identifies with the first Adam that we read about in Romans chapter 5. And, of course, we know that Paul later identifies him in that same chapter as the last Adam. So he is both the chief sinner that we can identify with because he was the one to whom all of God's um, curses fell down upon, right? He became that sin sacrifice, the sin bearer. And so I don't think my midrash is too far out to lunch when I talk about him identifying as a sinner. All right. So Paul Masterford describes this redemption uh, that is that is done by Yeshua. This redemption that had a, a, not just salvific overtones, right? It didn't just accomplish salvation for sinners, both Jew and Gentile, but it also accomplished this sociological. It destroyed this the social barrier that was erected by the time of Paul's day. It was this 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 misusing of the Torah to create a boundary uh, separating Jew from Gentile. Yeshua's death as a Gentile. Uh, brought down that barrier. And and in other words, it it opened the door wide for Jew, for Gentiles to come into the, uh, previously identifiable Jewish covenant. In other words, the Jewish people thought that the covenant was for Jews only. So Yeshua destroyed that. Look how Paul masterfully describes this in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. I mean, there's, this is just a whole sermon in and of itself. But he says, For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Quote. So go back and read Ephesians chapter 2 and three with Galatians in mind. Go back and read Romans chapter four with Galatians in mind. And I think you'll see that my summary here fits nicely. Here's what I said in my summary for last week. Put plainly, and this is a central theme of the book of, Gent- of of Galatians, and this is why I'm repeating it again. Put plainly, the Gentiles should not have been treated as second-class citizens in God's economy. The blessing of Abraham must extend to the Gentiles expressing faith in Yeshua as equal covenant members in Israel, or else Israel is not Israel, and the gospel is not the gospel. Therefore, since we referenced James D.D. D. John's explanation above last week, uh, I said that it seems to fit more contextually with the situation facing the first century Judaism's and with Paul's reasons for writing the letter to the Galatians congregations. Okay, so with that, as our segue to remind us of where we're at in this section of the book of Galatians, let's turn now to just two verses out of that section that we read in our um, liturgy. We're going to look tonight only at verse 17 and 18. Let's read that again. 3, 17, and 18. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it, is no lo- it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, if you'll notice, in my commentary, I skipped from verse 14 suddenly down to verse 17. If you go back and look at the ESV that I've got pulled up on your screen, The last verse in my commentary was verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then I skip in my commentary verses 15 and 16. And I skip those because primarily in my commentary Galatians, it is not a verse-by-verse commentary. Instead, I'm only highlighting what I call verses that are very commonly used as Flashpoints of disagreement between the prevailing Christian uh, communities today who are are of the understanding that the law is primarily been done away with in Jesus, it's relaxed and we no longer have any obligation any covenant obligation to keep it. So we have these communities on one side of of the argument, and then on the other side of the argument we have the what I'm describing as the Torah communities of today, the Messianic communities. These are communities of Jews and Gentile believers who are returning to an Hebraic lifestyle uh, and uh, re-embracing what is recognized as the Law of Moses. This would include many of the ceremonial parts of the Torah, what, what we call the um, visible social uh, commandments, such as Sabbath, um, circumcision, uh, dietary laws, the festivals, uh mezuzo, uh seed seed on the on the garments, things like that. So basically we have this sharp disagreement between these two um groups, and there are certain verses in the book of Galatians in particular that become used to either prove one group's perspective or to prove the other group's perspective. So it's not the entire book of Galatians that's always used. In other words, there are many verses in the book of Galatians where there's 100% harmony and agreement between both of these opposing camps. And yet, there are some verses that are just used in sharp disagreement. It is those sharply disagreeing passages that I'm focusing on in my commentary. I don't use all of the verses, so that's why I'm skipping around through some of the verses. But if just to get the context, if I were to look at verse 15 and 16, I can easily comment on them. As they move into verse seventeen, which is where we're going to start in my written notes, verse fifteen, where Paul says, "To give a human example, brothers, even with a man made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. I think in Paul's mind, what he has realized is that the influencers that is the 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 opponents that many Christians call the Judaizers the influencers have seemed to have forgotten or um seem to downplay." The idea that the the promise that God made with Abraham that goes way back to Genesis fifteen I'm sorry go back goes way back to Genesis twelve comes to a zenith in Genesis fifteen six where Moses writes that Abraham believed in the in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteous and in that exchange it is from that point where Abraham is reckoned as righteous in Genesis fifteen that we then move historically and chronologically to Genesis seventeen where Abraham receives physical circumcision. And um from Paul's perspective, this uh uh the sequence of events uh historically moves from the covenant made with Abraham in Genesis historically to the covenant made with the people of Israel through Moses at Sinai in Exodus chapters nineteen and twenty. And so for Paul, because chronologically and historically the Mosaic covenant comes after the Abrahamic covenant, then for Paul what we find is this. This premise or this theological, um, maxim, not really a maxim, I suppose a, a, a theological hermeneutic principle, I should say, that a later covenant, speaking of the Mosaic covenant, does not, um, overturn a previous covenant, speaking of the Abrahamic covenant. Understand my perspective? So, it is, that's basically what Paul's trying to set up in, 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 in uh, verse 15. To give a human example, even with a man made covenant, no one annuls to it or as to once it's been ratified, I'm sorry. Um I'm I'm really giving you a commentary in verse seventeen. Verse fifteen, he starts out with this idea that in his day, and, and in our day we can understand, that uh if if a man leaves a last will in testament, meaning a a, a man made covenant, uh the word covenant there can be a stand in for a will. If someone leaves a will <clears throat> The idea behind a will is that the person leaves it so that it can't be changed later on. No one annuls to it or adds to it once it's been ratified, once it's been written out. It's kind of the idea is that you leave a will uh, before you die because you you believe and understand that uh, once you die, once it's written up, and drawn up, and you, sti- you sign it, you stamp it with your approval, that no one's going to come along and change it after you die. It's not, you know, all your inheritance isn't going to be divided up in a way that you did not uh, intend and so, he starts out in verse 15 with that, with that human example. And then he moves from that towards verse 17, which is what I just described a moment ago. In verse 16, however, the one that's caught in the middle between verse 15 and 17, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Well What promises? We could see that these promises are the promises that would have been contained within the last will and testament that he described in verse fifteen. The promises were would have been contained within this will that was drawn up, to use that human example. And they were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And this took place way back in Genesis twelve through, say, Genesis chapter fifteen. So it is these promises that were made to off to Abraham and his offspring that are that that are Find their focal point in this one single descendant of Abraham, this offspring, this zerah in the Hebrew, this sperma in the Greek, this offspring, which Paul plays with uh, because of the fact that in the Old Testament, in the in the Tanakh, the the word um uh the word for seed, which is uh, zerah. Is a, a collective noun that always shows up in the singular. In fact, well, only one time in the Book of Samuel it shows up in the plural, but there I think it's referring to grains of wheat, where we might use think of the English word seeds, uh, like seeds of grain or something like that. But everywhere else, uh, when it's referring to even even mainly to people to offspring, it's a a collective noun and it shows up grammatically in the singular. So, it's a singular noun from a grammar perspective, even though it is a collective noun that can, much like the word fish in English, can refer to many, right? Many fish. I caught many fish, meaning there were multiple fishes. So, Paul plays off that in verse 16, and he says that this refers to Yeshua. It does not say to seeds, you know, offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring. So the the last will and testament of the promises find their focal point in one person, in one offspring. And it is with that idea that he moves into verse 17 that we're going to look at tonight. And then he, he I, I guess he has to do this because in his mind, the influencers had been looking at um, the promises made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and indeed throughout the, the book of Genesis. And um, from the influencer's perspective, The promises were, were given to, to the individual offspring in so much as each individual became loyal to the covenant by taking on the sign of the covenant, which from their perspective was Genesis chapter 17 and circumcision. It was there, once a covenant member, um, became circumcised in the flesh, it was there in the minds of the influencers that a genuine covenant membership really began. In other words, they saw that the entire Covenant of Abraham hinged upon the idea that Abraham became physically circumcised. So, from Paul's perspective, the influencers were essentially either either finessing or ignoring Genesis fifteen six, where uh, Moshe writes, "It was uh, Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteous." And Paul's going to go backwards a few chapters from Genesis seventeen. It's going to go backwards two chapters to Genesis fifteen, and highlight the fact that no. Genuine covenant membership for Abraham didn't begin in Genesis 17 with circumcision. Instead, it began, for Paul, it began in Genesis 15 with heart circumcision, not physical circumcision. So, that's where he's going to start going. Alright, look at this uh, verse 17 then in my commentary. Let's see how we can put this together with 15 and 16 and the the concept of the promises made to Abraham which extend not only to faithful Jews, but to faithful Gentiles as well. Let's see how we can fit this together. Look at my commentary. The first part of this passage, uh, meaning verse 17 and 18, the mention of the promise becomes a key element of later Pauline literature that God would make an unbreakable promise to Abraham and to his offspring and then bring it to pass, vindicates both the father's competence as well as his trustworthiness. For Paul, it is imperative that the existing covenant member understands the proper relationship of the Abrahamic covenant to the Mosheic covenant. So, allow me to quote Ariel and Dvor Berkowitz, formerly of FFOZ. In fact, this was from their book, Uh, Torah rediscovered when it was published by First Fruits of Zion back in 1996. Quote, we're near the um, bottom of page uh, 128 in my commentary. Quote, For those who trust Hashem for the promises, the proper order for faith and obedience is set by the sequence in which the covenants were given. In other words, faith must precede obedience. But the kind of faith accepted by Hashem, is one that naturally flows into obedience. True obedience never comes before faith, nor is it an addition to faith. It is always the result of true biblical faith. To rephrase this in terms of the covenants, this is still uh, Berkowitz talking. To rephrase this in terms of the covenants, the covenant of promise, which is Abraham, must come before the covenant of obedience, which is Moshe. If we were to put Moshe first, attempting to secure those promises by obedience, we would be going against Hashem's order. This, by the way, is the key to unlocking the difficult midrash used by Shaul in Galatians 4, 21-31. Berkowitz goes on to say, All we could hope for would be a measure of physical protection and the knowledge of spiritual things, but we could not receive justification or a personal relationship with the Holy One through obedience to the Torah. It all had to start with faith. Avraham came before Moshe, but Moshe did not cancel out Avraham. The two complemented each other as long as they came in the proper order. Now, end quote. That was taken from uh, Ariel and Devorah Berkowitz, Torah Rediscovered, FFOZ Publications, page 33. Notice that uh, Ariel Berkowitz mentions that... Um, uh, Moshe did not cancel out Abraham. This is essentially what Paul says when he says that the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. What is Paul talking about? Let's keep reading my commentary and we'll see. Bottom of page 128. Put plainly, far from diminishing or annulling the Abrahamic promise, the Torah actually comes along 430 years later to support and complement the Abrahamic promise, in fact, it actually somewhat safeguards it. If, if I could add some uh, more descriptions of the Torah, and we're going to find this out when we read uh, later on down in the passage here, how that the law is actually our pedagogue, our 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 uh, bodyguard, as it were, to lead the boy, which is the the covenant member, the 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 the, the, the albeit the um the 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 infant covenant member right the the young covenant member to lead him to the teacher of righteousness which of course is Yeshua and so in that little description that Paul is going to give us a little later on down in Galatians chapter three as we near the end of the chapter we see that the role that the Torah is playing playing is not only um comp- supporting and complementing the Abraham promise but actually safeguarding it the way a bodyguard would safeguard the boy back and forth to school. Okay, let's keep reading. Even if Christian commentators disagree with my conclusion that the Torah complements the Abrahamic covenant, top of page uh, 129, surely, I go on to say, they must agree with the plain sense of Paul's words, which speak of the impossibility of the Torah doing away with the promise to Abraham. Right? The Torah does not do away with Abraham. Paul tells us that explicitly. The covenant, the 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 Torah, which came 430 years later, cannot annul a previous promise. So we don't have any kind of amendment going on where the law of Moses suddenly does away with kind of dispensation fashion with the the promises made to Abraham. And here's how I say it in my in my commentary here: God did not somehow. You got to kind of picture dispensationalism in your mind as I'm saying these next few sentences. God did not somehow start with, quote, salvation by faith, in quote, which would be with Abraham, move to salvation by works, quote, unquote, which would be with Moshe, and then switch back to salvation by faith. In other words, we didn't go from Abraham to Moses and then back to Jesus, the way I hear some Christian uh, dispensationalists put it. Well, Abraham was by faith, saved by faith. But Moses offered salvation according to the law, which if you kept it perfectly, you could be saved then. So we had this kind of this dispensational salvation by law. And then when we get to Jesus in the New Covenant, we switch to salvation by faith again. Well, if, if that's the case, then we have some crazy kind of annulling going on between the covenants. We have some displacing going on. We have the, the later covenants displacing the earlier historical covenants in, in terms of theology. And so uh, I don't think Paul allows for that. Shaul's disagreement. I go on to say in my commentary, his disagreement with his detractors then is seen as a difference over which order these two covenants should be placed in, right, Abrahamic and Mosaic. As we have learned, in uh, the order in which they appear both in Scripture, right, Genesis with Abraham comes first, and uh, Exodus with Moshe comes second. So the way in which they po- appear both in Scripture as well as historically demonstrates the proper order in which their respective lessons should be actualized. And what is that? Avrahamic precedes precedes Mosheic, which is genuine and lasting faith in God will always precede genuine and lasting obedience to God. You understand what I'm saying? That's why I say that they complement one another. They don't disagree with one another. Alright, so the last paragraph that I have in my commentary here and then we'll go back and kind of midrash a little bit. The last commentary, in my in my in my uh uh the last paragraph, of my commentary says it this way: quite surely, I believe the influencers has a sequence out of priority. It's not necessarily that they had it backwards. Um, they didn't they didn't woodenly have the cart before the horse. Rather, they had misunderstood, in my opinion, the social. And 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 theological significance of what was going on in the book of Abraham. I'm sorry, the book of Genesis with Abraham, as it related to the book of uh, Exodus with um, uh, Moshe. In my commentary, I say quite surely, the influencers had the sequence out of priority. They had placed too much emphasis on ethnicity and a restrictive nationalistic definition of Torah obedience. In such a situation, I say, the covenant member-to-be mistakenly believed that the promise, which was referred to as the inheritance in verse 18—in other words, there's kind of a little bit of a, of a metonymy going on—the promise and the inheritance are kind of both the same thing in Paul's mind—the promise, referred to as the inheritance of in verse 18, sprang forth from ethnicity gained by obedience to a ritual that was implied by the Torah, which was what? the ritual of the proselyte. In this order, I go on to say, faith results from works. That was the influencer's position. Faith, which is, that is to say, covenant membership, faith resulted from works and human achievement. In other words, ethnicity equaled works. So, ethnicity is the works that were coming before faith. Even though the, the, the influencers of Paul's day didn't count ethnicity as a work, uh, per se. They didn't say that it was something that you really had to work towards. Rather, it was just some, uh, it was, it was an ingredient of election. A Jewish identity was viewed in the Judaism's mind of Paul's day. It was viewed as God's gracious election. It was God who elected to create Abraham, the first Jew, and in so doing to create the ethnicity known as Jewish or Israel. Remember, in their mind, Jewish and Israel were kind of synonymous terms. So, I go on to say in my commentary, in this order, in the order of works coming before faith, or in the order of ethnicity leading to covenant membership, in this order, genuine faith in God's Messiah for forgiveness of sins, i.e. the promise, right? That is the promise. In this order, uh, this particular aspect of the gospel, which is genuine faith in God as Messiah for forgiveness of sins, this part of the promise is rendered non-effectual and unnecessary because supposedly, in minds of the Judaisms of Paul's day, ethnicity and maintenance of commandments guaranteed righteousness and forgiveness of sins. You see how that works? That's all they needed. Ethnicity, which was Jewishness, and then maintenance of commandments, which was the works of the Torah, the, the, the covenantal nomism that came later on. These two parts, these two sides of the one coin guaranteed righteous declaration from God, and it secured forgiveness of sins because all we had to do was basically when we sinned, all we had to do was walk into the parts of the Torah that were prescribed to remedy sin and so it was a kind of a routine mindset if you sinned, you just went and brought your animal you you know you you went through the motions and then God forgave you, and that was really all you needed there wasn't really a a heart issue that was that was focused on. So I go on to say in my commentary as I'm concluding here, Paul would not have his Talmudim, his students falling for such blatant errant theology, using Abraham as the exemplar of faith and justification, like the influencers are actually doing. Paul's going to show that the inheritance that was spoken about in uh, Genesis 12 through Really, the rest of the book of Genesis, the inheritance must arrive to both Jew and Gentile by other than human means in order for Hashem to receive his proper acknowledgement, right? Remind yourself that when God started giving promises to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, and they come to their zenith point in Genesis chapter 15, that for Abraham, the primary Uh, ingredient of the promise that was in view, the focal point of his faith in God was this seed, this offspring, right? The promise that you would have a son. And from that son, many sons would be born. Many sons would come after. I like to call it the promise of multiplicity. And within this promise of multiplicity, the promise of inheritance included in that was also the inheritance of the land, so, for Abraham, what was primary was first one child who would then grow into a family of people who would then inherit a land of promise. Understand my point? So, all of this was 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 uh, captured within this idea of promise and inheritance. They all kind of fit together. And so, for Paul... Paul wants the influencers, and primarily he wants the, the Galatian readers, to understand that all of this, the, the promise package, came about by other than human means. Meaning, if you remind yourself of what's going on in Genesis uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, really leading all the way up to Genesis 22 if you want to catch, capture the larger picture, But what's, what's going on in the life of Abraham that's so important for Paul to bring out is that Abraham was promised all of these descendants and Abraham was promised all of this land. But the problem was Abraham didn't even have one. How could he have a, how could he have, how could he arrive at many when he didn't even have one? Right? And in order for Abraham to have one, God had to step into the picture. You know what I mean? God had to do something miraculous. So the point I'm trying to make is, as I say in my commentary, the son of promise was Isaac. The son of promise was Isaac. And he was to be born not of human effort, not by striving to produce offspring with Hagar, like Abraham tried to do in Genesis uh, uh, 16. Uh I'm sorry, did he do that in Genesis 16, 14, 15? Yeah, in sixteen. In Genesis sixteen he sleeps with Hagar. This is after Genesis fifteen when God says basically you're saved. And this is before Genesis seventeen where he gets circumcised. But in Genesis fifteen he sleeps with Hagar because he tries to bring about the promise by his own flesh. So it's not by striving to produce offspring with Hagar that I say in my commentary, but instead by divine fiat, viz., after Abraham and Sarah were past childbearing age. And that's why when we read about in Genesis 18, he's recovering from circumcision. He meets the three visitors in, in Genesis 18, and God promises them that a year later he's going to uh, actually have Isaac, he's going to actually have a son. And it's already described there that he's past childbearing age, right? So we know then that even though he already has Ishmael at that point in time, Ishmael came about as a result of his sleeping with Hagar. And therefore, Ishmael is is not the son of promise. Instead, Ishmael is the son of the flesh. And we'll read a bit later on about this, how Paul turns that into a midrash in the next chapter in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Galatians chapter 4. But suffice to say for now, what's most important for Paul as I finish up my commentary here, what's most important for Paul's point is that in the Gentiles identifying with Abraham by faith, they had to remind themselves that Abraham's faith in God was centered on God bringing into Abraham and Sarah's life a son that they themselves could not bring about by their own effort. And therefore, it had to come about by promise. It had to come about by faith, I should say. The promise had to be born of faith. And so, as I say in my commentary, the final sentence, likewise, as we look at Isaac in the life of Abraham, since Isaac was a miracle baby... Right? He was brought about by faith. Likewise, the Messiah, who is the ultimate son of promise, the ultimate son of promise of Abraham, the Messiah also would be born of miraculous circumstances, proving his connection to the antecedent theology that God alone can secure the promise for his children. End quote. So, for Paul, it all fits together airtight. You Gentiles who wish to be counted among the faithful of abraham you gentiles who wish to be included in the promise to abraham excuse me you gentiles who wish to be out from underneath the curse pronounced in the law against those who are covenant breakers those who have spurned the covenant those who are have proven to be outside of the covenant that god made with israel at mount sinai You who wish to be counted among the faithful of Israel, who want to be part of the commonwealth of Israel, you Gentiles must place your faith, like Abraham did, in the promise, and namely, the promised son. You must identify with the promise, and the only way you can identify with the promise of Abraham is to identify by faith the same way that Abraham reached into uh, into the faith of God by placing his faith on the son that was promised of God. Now again, for Abraham, uh, the first son in view was Isaac, but the ultimate son in view was Yeshua. So Isaac, just the, the same way that um, Paul uses Adam in Romans chapter 5 to identify him as the first Adam, the one who is the uh, the federal head of humanity, the one who brought sin into the world in Romans chapter 5, well, in the same way that Yeshua is the federal head of the new humanity, because through Yeshua, uh Adam's uh, offspring are redeemed from the ultimate curse of the law, the ultimate curse being the death of an individual. In the same way that Yeshua is the new Adam, right, the new federal head of the new humanity, well, in the same way, Isaac, in the sense, is the is the ultimate son of promise, but in a physical sense. He is the son of promise that Abraham had in, in short-term view, but the ultimate quintessential son of promise is Yeshua. And so Paul's not asking the Gentiles of his day to identify with the physical offspring of Abraham through Isaac so much as he's asking the Gentiles to identify with the spirit, spiritual offspring of Abraham, who is still a physical son, but more so the, the spiritual offspring being Yeshua, because he's the, he's the ultimate son of promise that was brought about as a result of God's divine means, not by human means. You have to remember that Yeshua was not born of human means either. Mary and Joseph didn't bring Yeshua into the world because Mary was a virgin, Hello. How did Yeshua come into the world? The same way that Isaac came into the world. Essentially, by faith, by promise, by miraculous divine means. Abraham and Sarah's womb, Sarah's womb was dead, and Abraham's body, as far as we can tell in the analogy, wasn't able to produce the offspring. Although he did have offspring later on, uh, but they weren't the sons of promise. So, that's really the point that Paul's trying to bring out, uh, when he talks about in verse 17 that, um, and I go back and read the passage again that this law that came forward in 30 years afterward does not annul a covenant that was previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void the mosaic law that the influencers were highlighting with their circumcision and their works of the law that cannot overturn the, the promise given to Abraham that was uh, uh that was already given to Abraham and if if that were be the case if the inheritance comes through a ceremony that was tied to the mosaic law keep in mind that the influencers were primarily identifying circumcision with the mosaic law right even though in reality i must remind the the influencers that circumcision is actually a feature of the abrahamic covenant not so much as a feature of the mosaic covenant but they got that part wrong they were primarily identifying circumcision physical circumcision with the mosaic covenant so um that's why Paul has to say in verse eighteen, for if the inheritance comes by the law, meaning if it if it comes by this uh, uh concept of what God gave to Israel at Sinai, and I don't think Paul means comes by works of the law there in verse eighteen, I really think he means law there proper. Then it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And the reason I think he means um law in general there is because in in one verse earlier in verse 17 he said this is what i mean the law which came forward in 30 years afterwards well paul doesn't mean that the works of the law came four hundred thirty years afterwards he's not talking about the works of the law there in verse 17 so i don't think he means works of law in verse 18 either where he says if the inheritance comes by law but in the larger context it's law but in the smaller context it is still this ceremony of the proselyte that paul has in view as well so they're kind of working together. All right, that's all I'm going to really talk about tonight. I'm going to shut the commentary down there. I really had in mind that I wanted to um, read parts of Ephesians tonight and parts of Romans, but as usual, I always get ahead of myself by biting off more than I can chew, and I end up talking uh, more by way of um, exposition than I do by way of what I really wrote in my commentary. So it's my weakness. I apologize. Nevertheless, let's go ahead and sh- uh, close the commentary for tonight, and uh, starting next week, um, since we finished verse 17 and 18, if you look at my commentary starting at uh, in the middle of page 129, we're going to start chewing on this really heavy verse 319, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And I can promise you this particular verse is going to spill a lot of ink in the biblical comment in the Christian commentaries and therefore I had to spill a lot of ink in my own commentary as well. We're going to probably spend a few weeks on this verse alone unpacking its meaning because I can't easily explain it. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, we bless your name and we thank you for the opportunity to study the book of Galatians once again, even if it is verse by verse, section by section. Lord, we know that uh, we can read ahead and we can gain a sense of what's going on because not only are the clear words of Torah explained uh, elsewhere by scriptures themselves, but Lord, more importantly, you have put your spirit in our hearts and that allows us to, to gain an appreciation for what the words are telling us. Lord, even so, we know that those who don't have, uh, those who share differing opinions, uh, 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 in other words, between the Christian communities and the Messianic communities, even though there are differences of agreement over um, the applicability of Torah in our lives, nevertheless, Lord, I'm happy to say that the two groups can firmly agree and um, uh, come together in this sense. Yeshua is Lord. And he is the only way to the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through him. And so we praise you, Yeshua, for being this quintessential son of Abraham, the one in whom Jew and Gentile can both be made righteous, the one in whom both Jew and Gentile can both be uh, uh, cleansed of sin, forgiven of sin, and brought into a right relationship with God. We know then, Lord, that it is... Uh, around the banner of Yeshua, that we can rally, that we can assemble, that we can unite together, Jew and Gentile, Christian and Messianic, those who say that the law is done away with, and those who say that the law still uh, here in force. We both agree that Yeshua is the only, one and only true way to the Father. And so, even if we have our disagreements on Torah, Lord, let us not have disagreements on who is who is who is the central focal point of the Scriptures Himself. And that is, in fact, the Son of uh, son of God, Yeshua himself. Thank you, Lord, that we have been brought to this conclusion. And to that reason, may we never lose sight of that fact. So continue to raise us up and draw us close to one another and uh, give us an opportunity to even sharpen our swords with one another, iron sharpening iron, and uh, hashing out our differences with one another. But never losing sight of the fact that we love one another and that we are commanded to love one another and to forgive one another. Uh, even as we wrong one another unintentionally. Um, thank you for this opportunity. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Beshim Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O oh Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set His affection on your forefathers and loved them. And He chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism.